Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Welcome back, one and all, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. What's up, everybody? I want to apologize off the uh, off the rip here about last Wednesday's episode. Audio, for some reason, was strange and came out sort of poorly. So, apologies for that. Not sure why. Really hoping that problem doesn't persist. Uh, and this one sounds good. What are we doing today? We're going to keep digging into Whitehead. All right, guys. Alfred North Whitehead. So we've been talking about him for some time, and I think we have got a few episodes left to talk about Whitehead. Started off kind of romantic about the whole thing. I thought uh, Whitehead's ideas were extremely interesting. I thought um, that I had a lot to learn from him, and I, I, I have. You know, I don't want to diminish that. But I'm finding that I have a lot more issues with maybe his style of writing, maybe um, his lack of clarity. And it's strange because a lot of philosophers, they speak really carefully, you know? They speak very precisely because they want things to mean very precise things. And Whitehead does that. I mean, for sure, he's inventing words to use for very specific reasons because he wants to mean very specific things, and I understand that. But it's not clear, even with these invented words, what he means. He's not being specific enough. He's not being illuminating enough. And I have have some issues with it, and I don't know whether I don't understand Whitehead well enough, and that's why I'm confused and and frustrated at times, Um, or if he wasn't clear enough, you know, is it his fault? Is it my fault? Is a little bit of both. Um, Maybe that's the case. But just to give you a little bit of a refresher, in case you're jumping into this one um, without listening to the other Whitehead episodes, Alfred North Whitehead was an interesting philosopher, and he was somebody who was adopted by theologians as much as philosophers in terms of his his philosophical model, what he calls process philosophy or the philosophy of organism. And the philosophy of organism, that, that phrase really puts it into perspective because what Whitehead says, and this is something he calls his ontological principle, he says that all things, and by that he means experience, because to Whitehead, all things are experience. And you can imagine, just from the way it is to be a human being, that's how our lives are. I mean, everything that we think we have, that we possess, whether it be ourselves, our, our bodies, um, you know, the world we inhabit, whatever it is, um, all of that stuff we know through experience. 
And that might sound strange, or you might wonder, like, well, how else could you have it? But that's exactly the point. You know, that there may be some objective reality, and we only have access, access to it through our experience. So we really can't say whether anything exists outside of our experience, whether there is even an objective reality, which I believe there is. I think Whitehead believes that there is. But to him, all things are experience. And every experience exists within other experience. So what you basically have is a web. You have this sort of fractal network that comes to mind where every object in it and every subject in it, for that matter, um, is is an, an experience. It's independent. It's living all on its own. It's its own universe, basically. And they're all connected together to form larger, more complex experiences, experiences that you might call a human being, experiences that you might call the cosmos. So even material reality to Whitehead is an experience. And so this ontological principle or this philosophy of organism, you can sort of imagine this, and this is a simplistic way of doing it, but you can imagine this like those those Russian dolls, like can't remember what they're called, but uh, you know what I mean. The, you open up the, the doll, and there's a smaller doll inside of it, and you open up that doll, and there's a smaller doll inside of it. This is Whitehead's model of reality. It's more complicated than that because it's not just like one experience becomes another. That is true, but it's also the relationship among different experiences that are manifest as actualities, things in the actual world. So it's much more complex, this sort of fractal web of infinite connections, and each set of connections, you know, represents something new, some new object, some new experience in the world. Uh, something like that. And this whole idea of process, when, it, when we talk about process philosophy, what that is, is, and the best I can explain it here in a simplified way, is that to Whitehead, you've got, you've got potentiality. And I love that word. I use it a lot. It's not really clear. It's not obvious how to make that word clear. It's meaning clear. But potentiality is whatever it is that's necessary for something to exist. You know, whatever, wherever it comes from, whether that be, um, you know, the origin of experience or the origin of matter or whatever it is, however you might, might think about that. But potentiality. And then, of course, the opposite of potentiality is something that we might call actuality. So the potential and the actual. And to Whitehead, the potential is constant, constantly being transformed into the actual. And, and what's unique about Whitehead is that he defines what actuality means. You know, we all kind of imagine what that means. It means real, it means part of reality, it means something like that. But to Whitehead, it, it means something else. To Whitehead, it means that it's being experienced. Okay, so you have something like potentiality. Whatever it is, that's the potential for experience. Whatever it is that makes experience possible. And that exists not, not in a way that we are familiar with, not, not in what we would call actuality or reality, for, for lack of a better phrase. Um, it exists in something like the Platonic world of forms or you know, the Kantian noumena or something like that. It exists in the spiritual realm, and that, that's not a, great, not, not, not a great way of explaining it either. It, but the point is it exists, but just not in, it's not real. So we might just use that word. Um, Whitehead uses the word concrescence uh, to mean something starting as potential and becoming actual. 
um, something from nothing, you know, that's sort of a magical phrase, but um, that's going to give you some picture of this. But to Whitehead, actuality, it means being experienced. And that's interesting, because what that means is whatever potentiality is becomes real by being experienced. Well, that's kind of what our world is like. The things that we experience, those are the things we think are real, right? And so it's something like that. It's like what it means to be real is to be experienced, okay? And that's what makes potential real or gives it being. He also talks about something he calls satisfaction uh, or feeling. You know, it's like when we talk about consciousness, the idea of feeling is sort of inseparable from it. But when you have an experience, you have a feeling right? that's associated with that. Maybe those words are the same words, feeling and experience. And Whitehead uses the word satisfaction when he's talking about that. And it's like what he means is that when things, when, when potentiality becomes experienced, and that, of course, makes it real or concrescent, as he calls it, that there's some feeling associated with that. You know, maybe it's the feeling of, you know, experiencing something, whatever that might be, um, or the experience of um, being experienced yourself, something like that. But he, he, he frames that as satisfaction. And I don't know what that word brings to your mind, but it's like a, a good or an end desirable in and of itself, you know, satisfaction. And, what, and the way he paints this is like having a feeling or an experience. That is the aim of process, you know. And process, by, by this I just mean the, the model of the world that Whitehead brings to the table. But you might also say God, and he does say God. So satisfaction is the aim or goal or desire of God. And it's stranger than that because God to Whitehead is not God as I understand it. And I wouldn't even use that word if it were me. I would use some other word to mean what he means when he says God. Um, but he also talks about this idea of the creative advance or the creative advance of the universe, something that he says transcends God. So to me, God isn't God in Whitehead's model. The creative advance is God in Whitehead's model. And so it's not clear whether this satisfaction is something that God wants or the creative advance wants or something like that. But it is connected to this notion of what is fundamental, you know, what everything is composed of, where it comes from. And those questions themselves might not even be good questions because Whitehead resists the idea of substance, what things are made of. And that's our strategy in, in modern science. We think if we can figure out what something's made of, that explains the whole thing. And Whitehead doesn't, doesn't think that's the case. I certainly don't think that's the case. Plato certainly didn't think that's the case. But what's fundamental to Whitehead is something that's self-created. Okay, he's just never so clear as to what it is that's self-created. Is it God? Is it process? Is it the creative advance? Are those different things? It's very difficult to tell. So this is the mix that we're in with Whitehead today. This episode is called Order and Chaos, Whitehead style. Um, in the first section we're going to open up with, I'm going to call Order, Concrescence, Satisfaction. Without further ado, let me give you Whitehead's words. Quote, For the organic doctrine, 
The problem of order assumes primary importance. The correlative of order is disorder. There can be no peculiar meaning in the notion of order unless this contrast holds. Order must be a synonym for givenness. Okay, so now we're going to get into this idea of chaos and order. And he's opening this up. It's simple. It's not complicated. He's just saying that his philosophy hinges on the importance of order. And order is contrast with its opposite, which you would call disorder. Um, so there's nothing really much more in there except for he says that order is a synonym for givenness. So when you imagine your experience, all of the things in it are given for you. It's like you become conscious, you open up your eyes, whether that be when you were a newborn baby or when you wake up from a good night's sleep, the world turns back on for you and things are just given in your reality. So these are things that are actualized. These are experiences that are actualized in the world. They're objects for you. According to Whitehead, that's the same thing as order. So that might make, if actuality is order, that might make potentiality disorder. You know, or chaos. And I think that's really not far off from the conversations about chaos and order we've had in the past. I always talk about Jordan Peterson and his uh, framing of chaos and order in Maps of Meaning and his talking about how those concepts show up in our religious stories. All of our religious stories from the very beginning are creation stories all across the world. But even our oldest creation stories the Enuma Elish uh, from Sumeria and the ancient Egyptian uh, versions of that creation story and even our biblical creation story. And all of these things talk about this generative union of opposites, something that's together, that's, that's opposites, that represent some unity, some wholeness. Jordan calls that the Ouroboros. Carl Jung called that the Syzygy, which I, I mentioned a few times on our Carl Jung episodes. But whether we call it Ouroboros or Syzygy or what have you really doesn't matter. The idea is two opposite things that really are one thing. And it's hard to imagine how order and disorder being opposites could in reality be one thing. But in our mythological stories, if they are one thing, if they're brought into a unity, that's a creative, generative act. And it makes perfect sense when you think about the, the opposites, rather than talking about chaos and order or potential and actual, if instead we, we talk about feminine and masculine, right? Because then you have this idea of a man and a woman, and it's not an exact, uh, you know, an exact or precise way of talking about it, but you know what I mean. If you bring the masculine and the feminine together into one thing, that symbol to me is a sexual symbol. You know, it's the beast with two backs. That is a creative act. And in the creation stories, the union of opposites was like that. You've got this cosmic egg in the beginning that's made up of these two primordial gods, chaos and order. And while they're together, they're just in this sexual embrace. And what's being created within them are all the other gods that exist that are going to come into being and play a role in these religious stories, including the cosmos itself. All of that's wrapped up inside. And if you go back to the biblical stories, you can see it very clearly because Genesis talks about everything being separated, right? The day from the night, the waters from the land, everything is separated. And that's what happens in the, even in our earliest creation stories. In the Enuma Elish, you've got the goddess Tiamat, the goddess of salt water, the goddess of chaos. And you have Apsu, the god of order, a god of fresh water. 
And they're both water. They're both the same thing. They're together in this unity. But they're separated from each other. And that act of separation allows, allows creation, allows for reality to be born. And so you've got this idea wrapped up in, in this discussion of chaos and order. And I find it interesting that Whitehead doesn't point that out. He doesn't even connect this to his own idea of potential and actual and the process between them. That's the process in process philosophy. And he doesn't make that connection when he's talking about order and disorder. So let me push on. He says, There can only be specific order, not merely order in the vague. So I think he says this for a few reasons. But what does that mean? There can only be specific order, not just this you know, amorphous, not attached to anything order. Well, it kind of makes sense. Because order, just like any potentiality, has to be, have some embodiment. It has to have some representation in order to be real, in order to be actual. But I also think he's telling us this because he wants us to avoid confusing order as something fundamental or as some power or some causative part of this process. Um, order, he, he says, is givenness. It's the things that are ordered, the things that have come into existence because they're ordered. But there's no such thing as order in the vague. So it's not like we don't want to confuse order with God, let's say. Even though Whitehead is not great about not confusing God with other things like, you know, the creative advance and all kinds of other ideas that we've talked about so far. And then he says, satisfaction provides the individual element in the composition of the actual entity. Okay, so that, there's more to that, but this is going to take some explanation. So remember, by satisfaction, he means the feeling, the experience of something that's been brought from potential into actuality. Now that it exists, it's something that can be experienced, and that experience generates a feeling. That feeling he calls satisfaction. That's the desire, the ultimate end. That's what God wants. That's what process is after. Satisfaction. I think that's kind of a strange thing to say, but we'll save that for a, for a bit. Satisfaction provides the individual element in the composition of the actual entity. So the actual entity is the experience. Any experience, including, let's say, the experience that I am. So... So when I've been made materially real, when I've been um, concrescent, that's the word he's going to use, that I become something that can be experienced, um, that experience satisfies the creative advance or God or process or whatever it is you, you, want, to, you want to use here for the stand-in because he does, certainly doesn't make it clear. He, he explains that what this means is that we have something called a subjective aim. And, it's, it, and you can imagine, if I'm something like potentiality, and potentiality is something like a stem cell. I like to use this analogy. It's a cell that can become anything, but it's not yet any particular thing. It's this amorphous, can-be-anything thing. That's what potential is. And so the potential for experience could become any experience, including the experience that I am, let's say. And that potentiality has an aim to become a particular experience. In fact, maybe infinite particular experiences. And when it achieves that, when it brings into actuality a particular 
um, experience. That is a particular type of satisfaction. I keep saying particular because this is what Whitehead says or what he means when he says that the satisfaction provides the individual element and the composition of an actual entity. It's what makes an experience a particular experience. And it has to be a particular experience in order to be experienced. Otherwise, it's a stem cell. It's no particular thing. And it can't be experienced. Have you ever experienced no particular thing? I don't think so. All right, then he goes on. He says, the satisfaction is the superject. So I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. The satisfaction is the superject. Satisfaction is the superject adding its character to the creativity whereby there is a becoming of entities superseding the one in question. So what in the Sam Hell does he mean by that? All right, let's take this step by step. He says the satisfaction is the superject. Okay, the superject is the end result of concrescence. When something becomes real um, and, and actualizes itself, it becomes what he calls a superject. Now, this is one of those phrases, those concepts that's wishy-washy as far as I'm concerned. Um, I, it's not clear to me what he really means by this, but I'll tell you what I think he means. By superject, he means, and this is something that is similar to the word subject. You know, when I, when I consider myself a subject, that means that I'm not just an object, right? I, I, I'm a thinking, living, breathing, conscious being of my own. So it's something like that that he means, but he explains, and we've talked about this prior, that an experience is brought about by the unity of other experiences, other actual entities as he calls them. So I'm kind of this composite creature made up of a bunch of other experiences that have come before me and, uh, and, and, and that constitute me in some real way. But taking on a subjective perspective, like I have, you know, the way that I experience the world, the way I experience myself. That's unique from everybody else, from everything else. And so you've got this, you've got this unity of experience that takes on a perspective. And the world, as seen through my eyes, let's say, to Whitehead, that's a part of the experience that I am. And you can understand that when you, when you understand that nobody else is privy to that. Nobody else ever experiences the experiences that I experience. They belong to me, including the way that I experience the world. It's, it belongs exclusively to me. It's mine. The world is mine, just like my body is mine. So this is what I think he means by superject. I think he means the world as a particular subject. And then when he says, satisfaction is the superject adding its character to the creativity whereby there is a becoming of entities superseding the one in question, this just has to do with the fact that, again, every experience um, can come together with new experiences to create something, something new, right? Every, you know, it could be like a composite situation or, or a relationship situation where experiences come together to become something new. And when something comes from potential into actual and this feeling arises whitehead sees this new experience the feeling of of being chris let's say that is new data right it's it's a new component that can be included in the 
composition of other experiences. And I've used this, I've used this before, but I'll bring it back up. So I had a friend years ago that uh, a couple years older than me, and um, uh, I have a, a brother a few years older than me. They're around the same age, and they treated me very differently. Like my brother was very critical of me, didn't want me hanging out with his friends. I was very annoying to him, that kind of thing. Um, when we, when you know, we were, we were kids. Um, but this other other dude, Keith was his name, um, he was very really open to having like the young kids hang out with him and uh, it was very like, uh, just meaningful to me just to have somebody older who was willing to accept me. But he was also very generous to me. Um, he took me and, uh, me and a friend out to a flea market when we were kids, which was a lot of fun when you're a kid. He gave us money from his own pocket. We, he stopped at the gas station and got like, you know, donuts and stuff for us to have breakfast all on his own dime. And, you know, when I was a 12 year old kid or something that wasn't something that a you know 17 year old kid did to for a 12 year old kid you know it just didn't seem like it just seemed like a like a generosity that I just wasn't expecting and it kind of made an impact on me I tell you that because it's something that inspired me to be generous myself and sort of changed my character from that point on permanently and that's an, an example as to how an experience, let's say in this case, Keith, could rub off on me and hold the whole separate experience, right, Chris, in a way that permanently changes who I am. And so you get some idea of this, how, how the experience of some person can become, let's say, data or, or, or you know, the, compo- the composite pieces that are needed to build the personality that I'm going to have, you know, something like that. So each time you have a satisfaction, each time you have a new experience, it adds to the character of what Whitehead calls creativity. And this is the idea of the creative advance. This, this is the thing that I think Whitehead means God when he says it, but he couldn't use the word God because he already used it to mean something else. Um, and uh, I think that was a big mistake. And I think Whitehead admitted it was a mistake at some point historically. Um, but each satisfaction creates data creates raw material, for lack of a better word, that can be used to create new experiences, to be integrated into new experiences and make new things going forward. So if we're, if we're going to call potential, potentiality, God, which I certainly like to do, then we can say every actual thing that gets brought into reality from that potential actually adds something to the infinity of God. You know, every concrescence adds something to God. And it, it's almost, to me, it's almost like that's what makes God eternal in the first place. You know, if experience were to stop, let's say, there wouldn't be anything new to it. You know, maybe God dies in that situation, whatever that means. But because it doesn't stop, because every experience creates new experience and new possibilities of experience, and that thing just keeps going and going and going. That's what makes God eternal and infinite. Something like that. All right, then he says, there are differences between the satisfactions of different entities, including gradations of intensity. The intensity of satisfaction is promoted by the order from which concrescence arises. It is enfeebled by disorder. Okay. All right, so he's saying that there's are there are differences in satisfaction. So you might have, you might have one, uh, you might have potential, let's say, becoming a particular actuality, and that might be, let's say, a better one than the one that 
comes next or the one that came before. It's like, what does he mean by better here? And he, and he says, gradations of intensity, which is strange, but let me just get back to this. Remember when he talks about the whole point is, is to feel, you know, God, whatever it is that makes experience possible, wants to experience itself. It wants to feel and so everything that it brings into reality, that it's, it can then experience, it can then feel, that's something that satisfies it. That's what he calls it a satisfaction. And some things satisfy it more or better than other things. Okay, now that's kind of a strange thing to presume. And I don't know how Whitehead imagines that that's possible. Um, I don't really know what he, where he came up with this idea. Um, but he does attach it to this idea of order. And uh, what it sounds like to me, and, I, and we'll get to this, it's that um, when experiences come together, Whitehead says that they prehend each other. Um, so that just means that they, that they come together, that they exist within one another. When that happens, the more completely um, this new experience can prehend other things, the more the greater the unity of prior experience that it brings into itself, the more intense the satisfaction. And this is why he keep connects it to order. It's like the, the greater the order, the more intense the satisfaction. And then he has this idea of negative prehensions, which I never understood really, but this puts it into perspective, sort of. Um, the idea is that if, if, if a concrescence doesn't prehend um, certain things, that that might be um, what he calls a negative prehension, that it, its satisfaction won't be as intense, it won't be as good. And here he's calling that, you know, the effect of disorder. So we, we're coming back to order and disorder. But here's my question. Why is satisfaction the presumed desire or goal of process or God or whatever it is you want to call it. Like, I don't know about you, but it does seem to imply a kind of anthropomorphization, right? You know, we're looking at God or process like a human being, right? We human beings are something that experience satisfaction. And I'm just not entirely sure what that means in the context of the process of the world. I just don't know. It certainly implies a thing, you know, whatever that is, with the capacity for feeling and satisfaction. Maybe even the capacity for will, since it seems to desire satisfaction. And will and feeling and satisfaction are all things that are so closely tied to being human that I don't really know if it's fair to abstract that to the process of the world. I don't know if we can, and I don't know why Whitehead presumes it. It sounds good, but it sounds so particularly human. All right, let me push on. He says, Concrescence is the building up of a satisfaction, which constitutes the togetherness of the discrete components. The process of concrescence terminates with satisfaction and the creativity thereby passes into the concrescence of other actual entities. Completion is the perishing of immediacy. It never really is. All right, so this is going to require some explanation. 
So again, this idea of concrescence or something potential becoming actual brings experiences together into one unity. And that unity, that unity is something that can be experienced, something that can be felt. And that's what he calls a satisfaction. So when Whitehead says that's what constitutes the togetherness of the discrete components, that's what he means. These discrete, actual entities, these individual experiences that come together to create this new experience. Then he says the process of concrescence terminates with satisfaction. So the process of becoming actual, becoming real from this state of potential, that it ends in a satisfaction. Um, so you might, you might think of that as being, psychologists might say that you're fully actualized, let's say, as, as a human being. And it, I think it means something like that, that when you fully come into your own to become what you are, um, that's the satisfaction. That's the end of this process of becoming. And then he says, and the creativity thereby passes into the concrescence of other actual entities. So again, the experience that you are creates raw material, data, um, from, from which other experiences can come or incorporate into these new experiences that will come after. And then he says, com uh, completion is the perishing of immediacy. It never really is. And that last part, it never really is, is a reference to Plato when he was talking about the idea of becoming. That as a human being, we're all, we see ourselves as something constantly becoming. You know, It's like we never, we never are exactly because we're always transforming into something else, into something new. And so every time you ask yourself you know, who you are or where is the being in this process of becoming, you can point to it, but what are you pointing to? You're pointing to something that came from something else, that came from something else. And if you go all the way back to the beginning, and you're saying, what is it that started becoming? And every time you, every time you ask yourself that question, the answer is, it, it's becoming from something that it once was. And at the very beginning of that process, you can't say what it is that's becoming. And so Plato says, whatever it is that's becoming never really existed it's only the process of becoming. And so the satisfaction is the perishing of the thing, um, of its immediacy, right? So, so I then become the raw material for some new experience that will come after me. And so I've perished, let's say, in my current form, but, but live on in the experience of, of others and, and the, in the future, the future experience. All right, he says, no actual entity can be conscious of its own satisfaction. For such knowledge would alter the satisfaction. <laughs> well, I don't know what you think of that. Doesn't exactly fit, but I wanted to keep it in here because it reminds me of something interesting. So why, why can no experience be conscious of its own satisfaction? He says, because if that were the case, it would alter the satisfaction. So it's somehow unknowable. But what that reminds me of, a couple things. It reminds me of the observer effect that we hear about from quantum physics. Um, this goes back to Niels Bohr and, and uh, you know a lot of these early quantum physicists. Um, and you've heard me talk about this before. I'm sure you've heard this many times. But the idea is that when you have quantum um, particles and you try to measure the, the particles, 
what you find is that you can't measure a particle. What you in instead measure is a wave. And so you've, you've got this duality where on the quantum level, things exist as particles, but also at wave, as waves simultaneously. And what collapses the wave function? What, what turns this wave into a particular particle with specific momentum and a specific position when these physicists are trying to measure something? What does that seems to be the measurement. It seems to be the observer. So I, as, an, as, a, as a scientist, when I measure the wave looking for the particle, I turn the wave into a particle. And it seems to be me taking the measurement that's doing that. And so this is what comes to my mind when he says no actual entity can be conscious of its own satisfaction because that would affect its satisfaction. And the observer effect says that's the same thing, that we can never know what's objectively out there because we are part of the system. We are part of this quantum system, and when we measure it, we've changed the system. So the act of measuring it changes the results, and there's no way around that. I think, I think there's some interesting interesting parallel there. Okay, that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call Mind, Feeling, Experience. All right, Whitehead says, The world is self-creative, and the actual entity as self-creating creature passes into its immortal function of part creator of the transcendent world. Oh, man. Oh, man. Okay, what a thing to say. So what does he mean here? The world is self-creative. That means it doesn't have an origin, or it's its own origin, something like that. Then he says, and the actual entity as self-creating creature passes into its immortal function of part creator of the transcendent world. What does that mean? So I think we as experiences are part creator. And the Bible says we're made in the image of God. And I think that has something to do with this idea of, of being a creator. Um, we're part creator of the transcendent world. Why? Because each actual entity, each experience that, that makes up us, um, becomes constituent of the new and novel world of whatever experience comes next. And it remains so forever. So we become this immortal thing. You know, when, when I cease to exist, but become part of the experience of some, of some new experience in the world, I'm going to always exist as part of that new experience, even though I'm gone. And I can think about this in terms of my children. You know, I, I think about the lessons that I teach them and the memories that we make together and things that will last longer than I will. But more particularly, I think about um, sort of being a disciplinarian and um, trying to instill discipline and uh, um, hard work and certain values, uh, you know, resiliency and things like that into my children. And I sort of imagine myself as like, you know, obviously I'm being an example of something that they're going to take into themselves. They're going to, they're going to it's going to become part of their personality. And so I will be this abstract thing existing in their minds, you know, that even when I'm dead and gone, will be the thing that, you know, that whispers in their ear what's right and what's wrong, and what they should do, and that they should face their fears, and all these things that I want them to learn. And in that way, even when I'm gone, I'm still immortal, in a way, because 
because that part of their personality that I am still exists within them and uh, will be passed on to their children and, you know, friends and people that they have interactions with and so forth. And it's more than that, but that gives you one example of what this might mean. All right, then he says, in its self-creation, the actual entity is guided by its ideal of itself as satisfaction and as transcendent creator. So this is interesting. So, so to Whitehead, every experience is self-created, including you and I. So when he says, in its self-creation, that is guided by its ideal of itself as a satisfaction. So this is this idea that the potentiality has all these infinite ways in which it, it can become actual. Um, and it, 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 it strives after, you know, you know, particular ones or all of them. I don't know. It strives after them um, and, and manages to, to actualize, you know, one of them, let's say, and has this feeling of satisfaction. So our self-creation is guided by that, by this what we might be. And so you might call that creation. And as transcendent creator. So we're guided in our actuality by this idea of ourselves as creation and creator. And something about that just rings true with my mystical experience. It rings true with all sorts of religious um, traditions as well. And then Whitehead says, The enjoyment of this ideal is the subjective aim, the lore for feeling. The lore for feeling. So when he says enjoyment here, the enjoyment of this ideal, again, that supposes a thing with the capacity to feel or to enjoy. And again, I, I, I mentioned that that might be kind of an anthropomorphic idea. It's something that reminds us of a human being, and maybe only a human being. But it, but it also reminds us of something with a mind. So it, maybe it need not be a human being, but certainly something that you would say has a mind. What else has the capacity for enjoyment, for feeling? Yeah, those aren't things that are physical. They're not they're not physical things in the material world. They're conceptual, they're mental, they're emotional, they're feelings. They exist in mind. And that's going to get interesting here. Okay, so Whitehead says, This lore for feeling is the germ of mind. I am using the term mind to mean the complex of mental operations involved in the constitution of an actual entity. Okay, the lure for feeling is the germ of mind. So this is interesting to me because it kind of seems to put the cart before the horse. Like you need to have mind in order to feel. And he's saying that this temptation for feeling or this lure for feeling, trying to bring these satisfactions about, trying to create experiences um, for the purpose of enjoying them, that that has to, that has to happen within a mind. But somehow, to Whitehead, the lure for feeling is the germ of mind, as though it creates the mind. So if you need mind for feeling, how is it that feeling creates mind? Aren't you putting the cart before the horse? 
And then he says, I'm using the term mind to mean the complex of mental operations involved in the constitution of an actual entity. Which seems to say to me, it seems to be an admission that actual entities or experience exist in mind. Right? There has to be these mental operations going on for, for an actual entity or for an experience to be possible. So how can you have that before you have mind? You must have mind. And then he says mental operations do not necessarily involve consciousness. So he wants to introduce this idea that mind is something that's more than the capacity for consciousness. So what might, might mind be then? Let's push on. He says, Subjective ways of feeling clothe dry bones with the flesh of a real being. The miracle of creation is des described in Ezekiel, and he quotes the Bible here, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood up upon their feet. All right, so you can kind of see why the theologians like Whitehead, because not many philosophers, especially of his era, are going to quote the Bible, but he has. So when he says subjective ways of feeling, the ways of being experienced, let's say, clothe dry bones with the flesh of a real being. So I don't know what he means by dry bones, but I think what he means is the potential for experience. And this is something that he's called actual entities. So, so these actual entities are clothed with the flesh of a real being. And he uses, to illustrate what this means, he uses this quote from the Bible about breath coming into these forms and making them live. You know, that's, that's what he did in Genesis when he breathed life into the clay forms of Adam, let's say. Um... So you've got so you've got the potential for experience that's being made real. Just like Adam, just like Adam being made real by God in the Bible. Interesting, right? Then he says, feeling has to be definite in respect to the eternal objects with which feeling clothes itself. Eternal objects are potentials for feeling, a conceptual lure for feeling. So you've got these, what he calls dry bones, right? The actual entity, which is the potential for experience. And it dresses itself up with the eternal objects, the eternal objects of experience. These are the things that he's called qualia. Well, he didn't use the word qualia, but our sense experience, the things that we, that we feel, right? Could be, you know, senses of taste and touch and, um, you know, it could be colors, it could be anything qualitative, the way it feels to, to, to feel pain, the way it feels to fall in love, the way it feels to be a human being, all of that stuff. These are eternal objects that clothe but the potential for experience and make it real, just like God breathing the life, the breath of life into the clay form of Adam. And he says, order in the actual world introduces a derivative order among eternal objects. Now, I include this just to say, what he's talking about here is eternal objects, which are like platonic forms. They don't exist in the world. They exist in, you know, the noumenal realm. They exist in, you know, the spiritual realm, outside of reality, in potential, whatever that means. 
But he says order in the actual world introduces order in this ethereal world. And they're connected, obviously, because the eternal objects become real, they become experienceable by attaching themselves to, you know, the actual world. And I think what he means by this is that creation affects the creator just as the creator affects creation. Now, you could say God creates the heavens and the earth, let's say. But having created the heavens and the earth, that experience then changes God, right? It creates some, some new thing that wasn't, that wasn't what you called God a moment ago. It's something new. And here, again, you have this image of a process. Creation and creator affecting one another, back and forth, in a continuous cycle, as though they're one thing. Just like the uh, Ouroboros we talked about earlier with Tiamat and Apsu, the feminine and the masculine, the, the generative you know, uh, union of opposites being one thing. And then he says, feelings are vectors, for they feel what is there and transform it into what is here. Ah, this is a simple one, but it, it took a lot of thinking, and I really, I really love it. I think it's beautiful. Feelings are vectors. So he said, when you feel something, you take what is there and transform it into what is here. When you feel something, you, you have an experience within yourself. So that makes sense to bring something into yourself. When you, when you have an experience, you do incorporate that into yourself. You feel it in your being. But I also think it means something like this. It says, for they feel what is there. And by there, I think he means what is in potential. And you transform it into what is here, which is what is actual. And this, I think, is what he means when he explains that experience is what makes something real. And you take something potential. And when you experience it, the process of experiencing it transforms it into something actual. It makes it real. All right, then he says, The subjective aim at satisfaction constitutes the final cause, or lore, whereby there is concrescence. And that satisfaction remains as an element in the content of creative purpose. Okay, so satisfaction constitutes the final cause. So that's the end or the purpose of something, right? That's what he means by final cause. The final cause of concrescence, of, of becoming real. And he says, and that satisfaction remains as an element in the content of creative purpose. So that feeling, like again, it becomes data, it becomes raw material that can be used or incorporated into experiences in the future, to new experiences that couldn't have existed until the data, let's say, that I am came onto the scene. Now it, ha now it has more to use to become whatever it is going to become. All right. That brings me to the next section, which is called Actual Entities, the World, and God. So Whitehead says, An actual entity has a threefold character. The character given for it by the past, 
the subjective character aimed at its concrescence, and the superject, which is its specific satisfaction, qualifying the transcendent creativity. Okay, so every actual entity, every experience, has a threefold character. And I'll, I'll make this simple for you. He says the character given for it by the past. Okay, so this is the past we're talking about. And what is that? According to Whitehead, those are the actual entities from which you arose, right? You are a new experience that came from prior experiences. So the character from which you came, your past, that's all of those experiences that allowed you to exist. The subjective character aimed at its concrescence, that's your present. That's, that's, that's the being, that's the elusive being in this process of becoming, it's the present. It's your present striving. Whatever it is you're trying to be. And the superject, which is its specific satisfaction, qualifying the transcendent creativity. So once, once I've become a satisfaction, and I become data for the rest of the world, let's say, then you've got you know, the novelty of, of future actualizations of something new that will exist in the future or might exist in the future. So these three components are past, present, and future. And he says, in the case of the primordial actual entity, God, there is no past. God differs from other actual entities. There is still, however, the same threefold character. The primordial nature of God the concrescence of, of a unity of feelings, the consequent nature of God, the prehension of God, uh, excuse me, the prehension by God of the universe, and the superjective nature of God, his specific satisfaction qualifying the transcendent creativity. So you've got the same thing here. But there's a couple things that I would say. So here where it says the primordial nature of God, the concrescence of a unity of feelings, well, you have to ask, feelings of what? right? If we're talking about God, and God's supposed to be the, the experience, the actual entity that kicks off this experiential process that all the other experiences come from. He's the first. God is the first. So when it says that the primordial nature of God, the concrescence of a unity of feelings, then I have to ask, feelings of what? Because nothing else exists. There are no experiences beyond that of God. So it seems to me that it's something like self-experience. You know, feelings of what? Well, feelings of God. God's own feelings of itself. It's self-experience. And then it says the consequent nature of God, the pretension by God, manifesting itself within the universe, essentially. And then the superjective nature of God, you know, the, his specific satisfaction qualifying the transcendent creativity, which remember, that means that, that it's acting upon this transcendent creativity. And that's the thing that I want to call God, even though Whitehead doesn't and makes this conversation extra confusing. Uh, but again, we see an example here of the, the transcendent creativity being impacted by the experience. And so you have this transforming of potentiality itself. And, and you get this image again of a process. Uh, creation acting upon creator, creator acting upon creation. And that's something difficult for most 
kind of traditional religious people to imagine. We, we imagine that God creates the universe and is far above it, or at least in control of it. And Whitehead is saying something different. He's, he's saying that creation, the act of creation, impacts the creator in the same way that the creator impacts creation. And it's a back and forth between the two. And in fact, this process between the two, between creator and creation, between the potential and the actual, that's actually one thing. So it's the process in process philosophy. Okay, and then he says, God is the outcome of creativity, the foundation of order, and the goad towards novelty. Order and novelty are instruments of his subjective aim. Okay, so I think what we see here, in particular in the beginning, God is the outcome of creativity. So if God arises from creativity, then creativity is the real God, the real origin, the real creator. Is it not? Is it just me? Am I the only one that, that sees that? God is the, uh, is the unmoved mover, according to Aristotle, the uncreated creator. If God was created, you know, if, God, if God's existence is dependent on creativity, then it's creativity that's God. And Whitehead has got everything topsy-turvy. All right, then he says, Every actual entity, including God, is something individual for its own sake and transcends the rest of actuality. God is a creature transcended by the creativity which it qualifies. Then he says, God satisfies Spinoza's definition of substance that it is causasu, self-caused. So let's dig into this one. So every actual entity, including God, is something individual for its own sake. This is the idea that every experience is an experience self-contained and self-created and including the entire unity of things. So experience is God, for lack of a better word, and the subjective perspective that we assume, right, that, that this idea of myself as a subject or a superject, um, that that gives the, that gives reality to the multiplicity of the world. In reality, the world is just one thing, one experience, this creative advance, this one process. You know, it's a closed loop, self-contained and self-created. And he says every experience is like that. Every experience is a unique perspective that, in, that encapsulates all of existence. And it, he says it transcends the rest of actuality. Right? That's the rest of it that we see as other than ourselves, you know, the, the world at large. Right? I'm a subject, and everything else is an object. So he says, he says that, uh, that it transcends the rest of actuality, which seems to mean something like, the rest of actuality, which is all part of the oneness. It's all a part of me. It's all a part of my experience. But it becomes an object for it, for the subject. The world becomes objectified, as Whitehead will say. And then he says, God is a creature transcended by the creativity which it qualifies. And again, this is... Oh, right along the same lines as the quote we read before this, God is the outcome of creativity. God is transcended by creativity. So clearly, 
whatever the creative advance is, whatever creativity means to Whitehead, that is God. That is the real creator. That brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call God as Feeler as Knower. All right, Whitehead says, The philosophy of organism is the inversion of Kant's philosophy. The critique of pure reason describes subjective data passing into the appearance of an objective world. The philosophy of organism describes objective data passing into subjective satisfaction. For Kant, the world emerges from the subject. For the philosophy of organism, the subject emerges from the world, a superject rather than a subject. So I think this is really interesting. You know, he's contrasting his philosophy to that of Kant. If you guys don't know Kant, uh, the Critique of Pure Reason is one of the landmark works of Western philosophy. It's considered one of the greatest works of philosophy even today. And he sums it up by saying that Kant's perspective is that there's subjective data that passes into the appearance of an objective world. Which seems to say something like subjective data is somehow fundamental, somehow real, um, and the objective world that it creates is just an appearance. Almost like the objective world is illusory. You know, it's not real exactly. Then he says the philosophy of organism tips that on its head and says that, no, no, there isn't subjective data. There's objective data. And it doesn't pass into the appearance of a world. It passes into the subjective satisfaction. So again, for Kant, the world emerges from the subject. But for Whitehead, the subject emerges from the world. Now my take on this is a little different. I, I, I was really struck by a quote from Maps of Meaning where Jordan Peterson's quoting um, Jean Piaget, who's a developmental psychologist, and he studied children and um, their development. And he was apparently a brilliant man. I haven't read his work myself, but I probably should. Um, one of the quotes that really struck me, though, it stuck with me, is, is this. Piaget says, Knowledge does not begin in the eye, and it does not begin in the object. There is a reciprocal and simultaneous construction of the subject on one hand and the object on the other. Man, still makes the hair stand up on my arms. So knowledge does not begin with the subject and it does not begin with the object. There is a simultaneous construction of the subject and the object together. Now he, he comes to this conclusion by looking at how children how children's conceptualization of themselves and the world develop. And what he says is that they develop together. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you can see what the world was like, what it seemed to you like. If you think about your deepest memories, like what the world seemed to you when you were four or five years old is, is exactly what you would expect a four or five-year-old to be able to manage, a concept that they can wrap their head around. But as you get mature and more sophisticated, what happens? The world gets more mature and sophisticated. Does it not? So the birth of our, of our understanding of ourself as a self and the birth of our understanding the world, that those things are happening together as if they're one thing. So here's what I want to propose. 
When Kant says the world emerges from the subject, and Whitehead says the subject emerges from the world, might we suggest that they're both wrong and right? Might we take a Piagetian approach and say the world emerges from the subject and the subject emerges from the world simultaneously? I think there's something to that. Okay, Whitehead says, the feeler is the unity emergent from its own feelings. Okay, what in the fuck? Let me read that again. The feeler is the unity emergent from its own feelings. So I, I sort of get what he's trying to say here. He's, he's, trying to, he's trying to paint the picture of something that's self-created, which he says that experiences are. They're self-created. So the feeler is emergent from its own feelings. It's something that's self-created. But we have to consider that feelings, in this case, feelings create the subjective perspective of a feeler. It's like, it's like you as a subject or a self doesn't exist until there is experience. It's almost like those experiences don't even take place within a feeler until you have an experience. And then that simultaneously creates this idea of a feeler to contain them or, or that the feelings belong to. And then we go back to something very Piagetian again, where the feeler and the feelings are maybe mutually created, simultaneously created. Then he says, order is applicable to the objectified data for actual entities, to the relations among actual entities. So this is more along the lines of order and satisfaction and intensities that we were talking about earlier. And he says that uh, order applies to objectified data. So you have to understand that to Whitehead, when you take on, when you, when, when you are the world assuming a subjective perspective, you have yourself as a subject, but everything else, all the other parts of you, you now see as objects. They become the world around you. And that data, you know, that's the data we get from the world around us. That's all the data we have access to. That's something like self-experience, by the way. It's, it's data of ourselves, of whatever it is that we are. But it's that objectified data that becomes uh, new experiences. And it, he says this is what order applies to. And then he says chaotic disorder means lack of definition. In the satisfaction attained and consequent enfeeblement of intensity. It means the lapse towards slighter actuality. And then he says, societies harmoniously requiring each other is the essential condition for depth of satisfaction. Okay, so earlier we were talking about this. We said that the, that the intensity of the feeling of the satisfaction is greater, hypothetically, according to Whitehead. When the satisfaction incorporates as much as possible, so when it prehends and, in, and includes in its unity as much of what's of reality as possible, the more it can do that, the more intense the satisfaction. The less it can do that, he says it, that's, he says it means the lapse towards slighter actuality. And then he gives an example of, of, of this. He, when he talks about societies, what he means are lots of experiences in association or relation with one another that create some greater 
more complex experience or entity. So that's a society to him. And he says societies harmoniously requiring one another is the essential condition for depth of satisfaction. And that kind of illustrates this idea of a greater unity, of, of prehending more and more, the, the most that you can incorporate into yourself to create uh, whatever it is that you are. The more you can do that, uh, the, the, the more powerful that satisfaction or intensity, the, the more God likes it, whatever that means exactly. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure why he goes there in the first place, but this is what he says. The greater and more complete the unity or prehension, the more intense or greater the concrescent satisfaction. Something like God enjoys that more. And then he says God is an actual entity imminent in the world, but transcending any finite cosmic epic. A being at once actual, eternal, imminent, and transcendent. The transcendence of God is not peculiar to him. Every actual entity, in virtue of its novelty, transcends its universe, God included. I guess what I want to point out here is going back to this idea of chaos and order and and recognizing that Whitehead doesn't connect this idea of chaos and order to this generative union of opposites, to this Ouroboros idea, which which he still maintains when he talks about potential becoming actual. That's the same exact thing. But here he says that God is imminent and transcendent. Okay, imminent and transcendent. Those are two opposites again. They're Ouroboric opposites. The union of those things is just like the example he uses when he talks about potentiality and actuality. But he never makes that connection, and I, I find that glaring. Then he says, for Plato, the process of the actual world has been conceived as an incoming of forms into potentiality, issuing into that togetherness, which is an actual thing. The creation of the world is the incoming of a type of order. It is not the beginning, but one of infinite beginnings. Hmm. Okay, so when we take this Platonic idea, which is something that's part and parcel to Whitehead's uh, philosophy, he says that uh, the process of the world is conceived as an incoming of forms into potentiality. So you can see potentiality as this, uh, well, as God, as this, as this infinite stem cell of experience, can become anything, right, type of a thing. And that its particular incarnation, its particular manifestations are made possible by these forms, by these by these, by some sort of a limiting structure that, that makes it, rather than being all things or nothing, like the stem cell, it becomes a particular type of thing. And this is the role that actual entities serve um, with, with, with their incorporation of these eternal objects of experience that we've been talking about in prior, prior Whitehead lectures. And then he says the creation of the world is the incoming of a type of order. So the important thing here is the last bit where he says it's not the beginning, but one of infinite beginnings. So remember, as a superject, I'm the world with a particular subjective perspective. I'm the world as a subject. And every, every experience is like that. The world, but a different type of subject that sees the world and experiences the world in themselves in a different way. So every 
Every world is the incoming of a type of order. It's not the beginning, but one of infinite beginnings. Every world, every perspective of the world is a kind of like a whole new world because nobody else expresses or experiences the world in exactly the same way. All right, then he says, the appetitions which constitute God's purpose. Remember, this is his will for concrescence or his desire for this feeling, this satisfaction that we keep talking about. That's the appetite of God. Again, another sort of anthropomorphic thing to say. But again, the appetitions which, which constitute God's purpose are seeking intensity and not preservation. He, in this primordial nature, is unmoved by love for this particular or that particular. For in this foundational process of creativity, there are no particulars. Again, kind of a strange thing to say that God, that, that God is unmoved or that God loves. That's Again, it's, a, it's not uncommon for religious people to say things like that, but hard to argue that it's sort of anthropomorphizing something that I don't know if it can be anthropomorphized. You know, what human beings share in common with God seems to be mind. And maybe all of these things, you know, will and desire and feeling and all of the stuff that we've been talking about, we can chalk up to something like mind. Uh, but Whitehead is going to be characteristically confusing on that on that mark as well, which we'll see in just a second. But this bit here where he says that God's purpose are seeking intensity and not preservation, um, I guess that, that's, that's basically pointing out something he, he's already said many times, is that actual entities, you know, experiences, they necessarily come and go. In fact, they have to go in order to allow some new experience to, you know, come about. It's going to incorporate, you know, what the experience that once was. So there's this necessity that experiences die, for lack of a better word. And so what God is seeking are intensities. He's seeking experience and not preservation. You know, to maintain an experience is neither here nor there. God doesn't love any particular thing. Just the feelings of particular things. Then Whitehead says, his aim is depth of satisfaction towards the fulfillment of his own being. His tenderness is directed towards each actual occasion as it arises. Thus God's purpose in the creative advance is the evocation of intensities. So it's all about feeling. It's all about evoking feelings that can be experienced. And this, Whitehead says, is the fulfillment of God's own being. And I have to go back to an earlier example where we talked about the primordial nature of God being the first experience. And what in the world is God experiencing if God is all that exists? And the answer is itself. Experience of experience. That's what we're talking about. So if God is something like experience or the potential for experience, fulfilling his own being is actualizing that potential through experience. It's amazing. And that brings me to, well, you know what, before I, before I move on, let me focus on this last bit here where he says, God's purpose in the creative advance is the evocation of intensities. 
So I know that we've been talking about intensity strictly from the sense of feeling. But I also have to bring up another maybe connection to physics here. We're, we're talking about quantum physics a little bit earlier. And one of the things that physicists will tell you is that matter and energy boil down really essentially to one another. And energy differentiates itself by, well, you might say intensities here. You might use that same word. But it boils down to patterns of vibration. So when you go down to the smallest level of matter and energy and you look at things like quarks and gluons and electrons and things like that, that what distinguishes them from one another is patterns of vibration and spin and charge and things like that, but essentially patterns of vibration. You know, everything is essentially some sort of cosmic music. So when he says God's purpose in the creative advance is the evocation of intensities, I also see this image in my head of like a guitar string vibrating and the different patterns of vibration becoming, you know, that's an, an interesting word to use, but actualizing maybe, um, these, these building blocks, these material building blocks that will allow all of matter to come about, that will constitute the force of causation and the laws of nature. And all of that comes from these patterns of vibration or, or evocations of intensities. I think there's an interesting parallel there. And that brings me to the last section here, which is called Mind and Body. Whitehead says, Each animal body harbors a living person, or living persons. Our own self-consciousness is direct awareness of ourselves as such persons. There are limits to such unified control, which indicate dissociation of personality, multiple personalities in successive alteration, and even multiple personalities in joint possession. All right, so here he's just talking about what it is like to be a human being and one of the ways from, a, the, from the perspective of our personalities. And Jung, and I've talked about Jung much, and Jung does a good job of talking about this, how we're basically a body inhabited by many spirits. And some of those spirits are more, are more primordial and they're more visceral and they're attached to our you know reptilian sections of our brain that go deep deep into history and they're about survival and they're about procreation you know and we have the spirit like you know the greeks would say this the god Ares, you know the god of war and that lives within us and it can be evoked from us it can be brought out of us in the right circumstances you get angry and you lose yourself and you become well what what do you become you become anger and you act out in ways that you regret it's because you weren't there anymore. You were overshadowed by this other spirit that lives within you. And the spirit of lust, like the god Eros, is something much like that. You know, you make terrible decisions because of because of your impulses. And when you when you come back to your senses, you say, Why did I do that? You know, why? Because you have other spirits occupying you, you know? And the unity of those spirits is something that we call the self. But it's not so clear, you know, it's not so clear if they're if they're, if they're in, in what way they're unified, I guess I'll say. And he says that our own self-consciousness is direct awareness of ourselves as such persons. It reminds me of a, a quote from the philosopher Hegel that I love. Real simple, and he says, self-consciousness has before itself another self-consciousness. And that's that's certainly how we see ourselves. It's something like viewing ourselves as a subject but also as an object 
You know, we, we're an object just like any other object in our experience. But we're also special in the sense that we have this subjective aspect as well. And so we see ourselves as both subject and object. And that's what self-consciousness is like. But how, how we have unified control over these personalities that exist within us or over ourselves as subject and object is very difficult to understand. And I think that this ties back to this idea of actual entities existing as a unified uh, experience or, or building up into something greater like what he calls a society, a new experience. And there's order to that. There, there's a hierarchy to that. The question is, who's at the top of the hierarchy? And does that allow for some unity? Does, does something hold it all together somehow? And Whitehead says, originality in the world is conditioned, though not determined, by a subjective aim, supplied by the ground of all order and of all originality. Okay, this is another one of those moments where I have to stop and say, why, why, oh why, Whitehead, do you not explain this more? How can you say something like the ground of all order without telling me what that is or means? What is that? Is that the creative advance? Is that God? Is that mind like we've, we've just introduced into this picture? And he goes on, he says, Cartesian philosophy is based upon the seeming fact of one body and one mind, which are two substances in causal association. For the philosophy of organism, the problem is transformed. Each actuality is physical and mental, the integration of the physical and mental sides into a unity of experience is a self-formation, a process of concrescence, which characterizes the, cre the creativity which transcends it. Okay, so he's saying according to Descartes, there's mind and body. They're two separate things, but they're in causal association. They're, they're linked, they're associated, but they're two separate things. And he says, oh no, for the philosophy of organism, it's, it's not like that at all. There's only one thing. It has a physical side and a mental side, but they're not two separate things, and this is very important. He says the integration of the physical and mental sides into a unity of experience is a self-formation, a process of becoming, something like that. And here again, we see this, we see this illustration of creation affecting creator and vice versa. Okay, he says, through mental excuse me, though mentality is not non-spatial, it is always a reaction from integration with physical experience, which is spatial. And then he says something weird here. He says, we must not demand another mentality presiding over these actualities. So what does he mean by that? I think he means something like a transcendent mind. Cosmic consciousness, something like that. But then I ask, if we, I don't know why he's telling us that we shouldn't demand this. Like, it seems like it should be on the table for consideration, and he's telling us it shouldn't be. Then he's not giving me any reason why. And then I have to ask, if there isn't a transcendent mind, what then is the primordial nature of God? 
I mean, he told us before, he said something about the mental pole, if you remember from a prior lecture. And he said basically that the actual world, that what's been actualized, creates a mental pole or or contributes a mental pole to the potentiality. So that if I'm looking at the whole kit and caboodle, everything that exists, it's the potential and the actual. And he's saying that it's in the actual where we have something like mind, the mental pole. So the actual gives mind to potentiality. It gives mind to God. It, it's the thing that allows God to have a mind, something like that. But if mind only exists in individual experiences like you and I, and, and I can't demand a mentality presiding over everything, I'm, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure how to make sense of that exactly. It's like God only has a mind through the, its creatures, its creation that, that have a mind, something like that. And parts of that I like and parts of that I don't, I don't like. I'm not sure how to come to terms with that yet. Then he says, all the life in the body is the life of individual cells. There are thus millions upon millions of centers of life in each animal body. So what needs to be explained is not dissociation of personality, but unifying control, by reason of which we not only have unified behavior, but also consciousness of a unified experience. So we are these cumulative, shared, united beings made up of a bunch of other, of other living, independently living creatures. Just like he says when he talks about, you know, uh, his ontological principle and, and actual entities, you know, existing within one another. It's very much like that with a human body. All these individual cells that make up this greater reality that we call our bodies. He's saying the mystery there is not that we exist in this cumulative way. The mystery is how we have any kind of unified control of our body and how we have any sort of unified experience. You know, it's, I think we would agree that if we knew what it was like to be a cell, that all of the experiences of a cell, if we accumulate them all up, that does not equal the experience of a human being. There's something else going on. And then he adds, a heart can be made to go on beating after it has been taken out of the body. There are centers of reaction and control which cannot be identified with the center of experience. So the question is, what causes the heart to beat on its own when not being made to beat externally? What is that center of control? And that brings me to my conclusion. Okay, this has been my favorite reading in Process and Reality to date. This has been my favorite one. Whitehead really digs into those alluring concepts that he's been so fragmentary about thus far. Concrescence, satisfaction, God, and creativity all take center stage. Not just these, but a new concept enters the picture. One he alluded to before when he described the world as furnishing the mental pole of reality. Today, for the first time, mind enters the picture. In typical Whitehead fashion, however, this concept is no more clearly defined than that of God from the creative advance and cannot be distinguished from them any more than concrescence and satisfaction or feeling and experience. In all my frustration, I continue to give the benefit of the doubt to Whitehead. 
I know as well as any that ontology is rife with paradox, intuition, and the strain of communicating ideas that are irritatingly ineffable. To that end, it is possible, even likely, that I have not yet understood his ideas well enough, but I continue to strive. Whitehead began today speaking of chaos and order, concepts which the regular listener will be familiar with from my many rants on the subject. I, of course, take the Petersonian perspective that chaos and order are not only fundamental principles of reality, but also representative of the generative union of opposites, the Ouroboros of our religious creation myths. Interestingly, Whitehead speaks of the generative union of opposites with the ontological principle, which rests at the foundation of his philosophy, the idea of potential forever being made actual. And yet he does not make this connection here. Instead, he links the idea of order to the quality of a concrescent unity. The more ordered it is, the more is brought into unity in the concrescence, the greater the satisfaction or intensity generated by the experience. This, Whitehead suggests, is something like the desire of God, of process, or the creative advance. The evocation of feeling is the end and purpose of being. And this brings us to mind. Whitehead says there is a lure for feeling. It's not particularly clear what this means, but it is connected to the desire for feeling attributable to God or the creative advance, which transcends God. It is this mind which Whitehead tells us is the source of experience. So we could say, although Whitehead doesn't, that mind is that which has the capacity for feeling and that which makes experience possible. It's hard for me not to call this God. Whitehead does not, nor does he explicitly link it to the creative advance. He even warns us, without justification as far as I can tell, that we, must demand, that we mustn't demand another mentality presiding over actualities. Why, I wonder? What is he so afraid of here? We aren't supposed to hypothesize a cosmic mind, a Brahma, a source consciousness from which all actualities inherit their own mind? Again, I say, why? To avoid the conclusion that mind is somehow fundamental? But this begs the question, and stands directly in the way of answering the question he leaves us with. Whitehead asks, how we can explain unifying control of behavior and a unified conscious experience from entities that are merely composites of other independent living entities and personalities. How can we ever hope to answer the question, what is the center of experience? Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties. But I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. 